Last year, I bet there was one song you were singing around the office, in the shower while you made your tea. Obviously, I'm talking about the Corn Song by Corn Kid, but it wasn't just a meme that went big. It actually shifted the global agriculture market. So don't let your stakeholders say, oh, it's just a TikTok. Now, the creator behind that video, a guy called Julian, and his account, Recess Therapy, is actually managed by today's guest, Doing Things Media. Scott Dunn, who's head of business development and creative partnerships, doesn't just look after Recess Therapy, but a large handful of your favorite internet creators. So who better than Scott? got to ask about where the creator economy is headed. In this episode, expect to hear how creators can stay relatable when they're building themselves into businesses, what legacy brands in 10 years will be able to offer creators who are becoming their competitors, and what the very thin line is between the biggest creators in the world and just another average influencer. So Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have this conversation and we've got a lot of things we want to ask you, but the first thing I want to know is when does a social account that makes videos for entertainment become a brand that can actually last for 10 years or more? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, It sometimes happens slower than one might imagine. Um, A a great example is one of our shows is called Recess Therapy, uh, known for that infamous moment where uh, a kid named Tariq talked about his love for corn and thus became Corn Kid. You know, interest and coverage, you know, sort of sparked uh, as a result of that moment. But what few actually realize is that, you know, we had been working on the show for about two years prior to that moment. And there were incremental viral moments that, you know, followed each other. Uh, They subsequently got bigger and bigger and bigger, but ultimately turned into that moment that has since put us on a global map and has turned into a very, you know, exciting business for us. So, Um, You know, no two shows or no two creators are the same. Some sort of grow a little bit faster than others. Um, But ultimately, you know, these things require reps and repetition and consistency and knowledge of the opportunity and what their audience wants that you could then leverage to sort of perfect the journey. So, um, yeah, everyone is sort of on their own path. um, But from my experience, it's always a little bit slower than what I think the audience actually realizes. Yeah, there's no such thing as overnight success in reality. But I'm sure for anyone who's listening who might not know what you mean when you say recess therapy, the corn kid, maybe you could give us a, a song, a rendition of what that viral, that viral, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, it, it's so funny you say that because part of what made that moment such a phenomenon is like the stickiness of that song. And as soon as you think about it in your head or listen to someone else singing it or hear it on the radio, uh, it's going to stick with you for at least 24 hours. So I, that's that's a scary proposition that you're offering me right now (laughs) absolutely i feel like it was just like coming from random corners of the office for about two weeks straight and i think someone over there singing it someone here singing it yeah absolutely insane impact and i know you know aside from recess therapy obviously that one's like a name that will stick now in sort of public consciousness but you guys have like a couple of really um solid creators under your belt and i know how invested you are in sort of you know always having your eye out and finding the next new creator so i'm interested to know how do you know when you found the next big name or a creator who's really worth your investment so is it before or after they have a viral hit maybe not on corn kids scale but um you know do you first need that to prove that they've got like the moxie to make it or uh, are there other indicators it's a really great question and largely i think it comes from the intangibles uh which that you know that means a variety of things and criteria to me at least i look for at first this sort of fearlessness to experiment 
Um, when I met Julian, the host of Recess Therapy, before we even conceptualized the series, he said, Scott, give me a microphone and I'll go out in New York City and do anything uh, that's legal. And, and I'm like, that, that's amazing. I can work with that. So this sort of fearlessness to both experiment and sort of a will and drive to improve um, because the internet is you know, fluctuating. It's very volatile, constantly changing. You need to be willing to sort of disrupt what you're comfortable with and sort of rediscover yourself and a lot of creators, um, you know, become, again, very comfortable with what is working for them. Um, but the internet, uh, they move on. So uh, I always sort of look for that will and drive to continue to grow and disrupt, you know, your overall content strategy. Consistency is hugely critical. Um, so I can literally learn after maybe a 30 minute conversation with a creator, you know, what their work ethic is, how much they care about this, how passionate they are. Because ultimately, we're not talking a year, we're talking building businesses that last five, 10 years. So you know, when things are tough or when things continue to evolve, um, are you going to be willing to continue to put in the effort that's required? So that consistency is hugely important to me. But when you get sort of deeper into the weeds, I always look forward to just general engagement. So whether you have 10 million followers or a thousand followers, I like to read sort of the comment section and the consistency of that engagement post over post and get a sense and a pulse of what fans are, you know, liking about the content, how they're interacting with their favorite creators, because that actually draws a much bigger picture as you consider building a multifaceted business around that creator, what type of relationship they have with them. So, you know, there's, there's a pretty long list of criteria that I usually consolidate into a few specific pillars. And uh, these four in particular are hugely important to me and, and to us as a business. Yeah, I think that work ethic point is super important as well, especially, you know, as you said, it's not just flash in the pan, like one hit wonders you're looking to invest in, but actually um, turning them into businesses, as you said, can go five, 10 years. But what what really interests me, and I know it's something we touched on um, the last time we spoke, is this idea of the influencer marketing landscape or creator economy as it is now. Um, and when creators are sort of either becoming or the end goal is to become become uh, you know, a media entity or have this business uh, in their own right, what the situation is going to look like for you know current brands, legacy brands, existing brands, and what are they going to be able to offer creators to keep them promoting their business when creators are saying, well, why would I promote your product when I can just build my own business, have my own product? What There's a lot of legacy brands listening now saying, what are we going to do? It's a slippery slope. For sure. And I've seen this happen so many times where there is a creator who begins to work with a legacy brand, right? It's very transactional. Here is X number of dollars in exchange for, you know, branded content and posts and promotion to your audience. And as that creator gets bigger and bigger and bigger, some become synonymous with that product category, right? They're purchasing a ton of volume to that third party brand by virtue of the relationship they have with the creator. Uh, to the point where it pours over and they realize, oh, shoot, I could probably do this on my own. You're starting to see that happen more and more often. So to be quite frank, in my opinion, what I think the best thing these legacy brands can do um, to avoid sort of churn and flight risk is ownership, is equity, because that plays both offense and defense. Offense, of course, is leveraging that involvement to help sort of further and grow your brand. But defense is, hey, I'm giving you a huge chunk of this business and you're incentivized to stick around. So it ultimately pays off longer term. Why would you leave to do something on your own? Um, so I'm starting to see that become an offering to creators for the very first time. And it's off, it, it, it's sort of ironic because at least from my POV, a lot more creators were talking about equity as just like a term, as a thing. Two years ago, no one understood what that meant or like the value or magnitude of receiving equity in a business. 
but it's becoming incredibly normalized. And I think in large part, it's because it's being offered to creators. So when you sort of consider how you know, an influencer partner could potentially serve as a competitor to you over longer, you know, periods of time. The best way to retain them is to give them a very strong reason to stick around. And obviously that's cash, but further, I think it's the idea of having a piece of that business and a piece of that upside. And then even further, like deeply ingraining them in the brand. So as opposed to potentially just promoting, you know, a standard product of theirs, how can you co-brand this? How can you put some of their branding and likeness onto a product that they feel they have sort of or ownership of control towards. So there's a number of factors, um, but you got to give them skin in the game. Otherwise, they're going to find another reason to pursue something that benefits them longer term when they have a ton of skin in that game. I really agree. And it's something that, as I said, really interests me. And I'm curious now then, outside of that, outside of incentives, do you think there's a way that the traditional influencer marketing sort of system or structure can or should change? Because, you know, even when we talk about giving a couple of uh, key creators equity in a business for the businesses and sort of groups that work with hundreds, if not thousands of creators, uh, rather than having a couple of ambassadors to do that for every single one. I don't know. Is, is there is there an alternative to an incentive uh, or a way in which that structure will have to change long term? I do. And I think the industry is heading towards what, you know, let's just say the sports world calls endorsement deals, um, as opposed to just one-off individual posts, like a pay for play. It's longer term and it doesn't necessarily need to offer ownership in the business, but it's a guaranteed set of income, which all creators are looking for, right? The majority of these sort of upper echelon ones are full-time into this stuff. It's their livelihood. So they'd much rather prefer a longer term relationship with the brand than just these one-off posts. And, and by the way, the audience would appreciate that as well. Um, the idea of just getting paid to promote a one-off thing isn't necessarily going to move the needle. When you see that repetition, when you see the consistency, as just you know, an audience, as a consumer of, of that content and a fan of that creator, you understand that they care about this stuff. There's authenticity baked into it. They're continuing to put it in their feeds and present it to their audience. I'm going to start to take that more seriously. Um, so I think that really means endorsement deals, you know, over several months, fixed level income month over month and other like aspects of the relationship beyond just social promo. You're starting to see usage play a huge role in these deals. Um, again, I'm, I'm sort of dating myself, but two, three years ago, that wasn't even included in these deals. Then it started to present itself more and more frequently. Now it's mandatory. There's a brand working with the creator. Hey, I want that content that I can then use to put through my paid uh, and organic channels. Um, so. I think that's where we're seeing the industry head. Um, and you know, last but not least, I think followers are just steadily becoming a little fatigued with brand and content. If content is good, they won't recognize whether they're being targeted or not. So that's incredibly important. But I think creators are becoming a little reluctant to working with a mass volume of you know branded partners, offering them just one-off deals, and they're just sort of flooding their feeds with you know content that isn't organic and risks or you know, their audience eventually just unfollowing or, or quickly scrolling past their newly uh, posted videos. So these longer term deals are going to become incredibly more popular, in my opinion. Again, we're sort of referring to that top tier of creators, you know, let's say the top 10 to 15 percent of the industry. And uh, I can only see that continue. Would that advice differ? Or who do you think has the advantage 10 years from now? Is it those more established brands whose equity is more valuable or is it new brands and upstarts who can afford to be more agile? Speed is is the ultimate asset. And I think you really, you know, said it best, agility is a massive, massive advantage. So um, I think creators are gaining more and more control. I mean, when you sort of look at these legacy brands, you 
almost view them as sort of faceless. Like you don't see a person or a peer behind the copy, the messaging, the content. You know it comes from a larger conglomerate and that's obviously okay. But I think what's becoming very appealing um, to millennials and especially Gen Z with, you know, the feastables and, um, you know, the prime drinks of the world is that you know it's coming from a creator whom you already trust and you know that they're involved in the branding and the product. You know that they're, you know, deeply involved and not necessarily being targeted to just buy a product for the sake of profit. And I think that's incredibly comforting. So I do think creators have a massive advantage. And I think over the next five to 10 years, whether you're a creator who wants to build it from the ground up yourself or you're an already existing business that wants to actually partner with a creator as sort of a founding member to represent as that face and tone and voice of your brand, it's going to become incredibly imperative if not mandatory. Um, so we're barely at first base, um, but I'm starting to see the writing on the wall and creators, again, are recognizing the true value and influence that they possess. And uh, they're not giving that away lightly. Yeah, and I don't think they should, to be honest. But even so like brands or like even agencies, anyone whose job it is to make content, I think is recognizing that their real competitors aren't necessarily the other companies in their category, but actually like creators um, who could be talking about their category as well as other stuff that people are actually, you know, watching and, and paying attention to. So one of the sort of conversations I've noticed, especially on this podcast, is brands either deciding that they will or asking how they should should behave more like creators. So I want to ask you, do you think that brands can go the other way and start behaving more like creators? And if that were the case, if Ralph Lauren, for example, followed the uh, the blueprint of one of uh, your creator's brands, Breezy Golf, what would Ralph Lauren's strategy then look like? Totally. Um, everything starts with just good content and media. Uh, and you want to sort of organically integrate your product within that really good content that people are already engaging with. And over time, you're going to get that recognition. You're going to get the brand affinity. Ultimately, you're going to convert people further down the funnel to purchase your product. But you know, it really does all start with great content that people want to consume. Um, so when I think about, let's just say the Ralph Lawrence and what we're doing with Breezy Golf, which by the way, you know, it's a, a premium golf lifestyle apparel brand that was built adjacent to one of our top creators, Robbie Berger in the golf space. Um, first, we built up like a really loyal fan base and audience who, you know, just anxiously await that next new video that drops on YouTube uh, every week. And again, sort of Robbie became synonymous with, you know, really visual, vibrant polos. And they wanted to wear what Robbie wanted to wear. So over time, we started to replace that third party brand with our own and didn't necessarily make it overly overt and in your face, but fans took notice and eventually would look to purchase these products. So when we think about actually growing Breezy Golf, we don't want to just find like the random one-off influencer, hey, here's X number of dollars, wear our shirt and just shout us out. We want to actually produce content, you know, a content series around you, leverage our platform to elevate you, help you build your own individual, you know, audience. But of course, you are going to be decked head to toe in our product. And that fan base and that loyalty, creating those brand evangelists through that personality is ultimately going to translate to more volume of sales for us as a business. So it, it sort of plays into what I was saying earlier about usage. These brands want to actually acquire really great content from creators who know how to produce the best content on the internet and distribute it through their channels and mass. Um, so in so many ways, you're starting to hear that commerce businesses are turning inherently into media businesses at the same time because content creates that flywheel that allows you to stay in sort of the cultural zeitgeist. So I guess long story short, if I were say Ralph Lauren, I'd be thinking less about, you know, influencer partners and more about, hey, how do I equip these creators with the infrastructure and tools to just make a ton of really great content? 
And as that clock's eyeballs, I want to make sure my products are sort of immersed within it. No, definitely. And I think I want to talk a bit more about the creator's psychology side of things in a minute. But first, I think on behalf of people listening at home, the way that you sort of describe it, I think hints at an absolute machine going on in the background. It's more than just you know telling people what to post. Um, so what sort of infrastructure and like what's going on in the back end um, of your management of these creators? Like how do you you know, what, what slacker are you sort of, of pull, are pulling up to help them do what they do best, which is obviously to create? It's a really good question. And I, I talk about this a lot um, with all the creators whom I work with. And I start off by saying that business is stressful. You know, if business is booming, uh, which is obviously a good problem to have, it's still stressful because it's a business after all. And there's a myriad of things that you need to be responsible for. So when we think about building businesses while managing creators at the same time, I really try to separate sort of, you know, the creative process with the business support side, because if creators become too immersed in what is required to handle logistics and management and scheduling, they're going to become stressed. And if they're stressed about business, it's going to dilute the creative offering. So what we do best is, you know, try to minimize their visibility, only keep the most pertinent of things, you know, in front of them. So they have visibility, but otherwise from hiring editors to scheduling and to booking partners for the series to, you know, the number of ways when it comes to supply chain for launching commerce businesses, they need to know just super high level what's in the back end. So they're, you know, understanding where things are and how they can be involved. But ultimately, we really want to just empower them to focus primarily on producing the best type of content, fostering community, growing audience, because that's at the epicenter of everything. And if the content isn't up to par, it can't support all of these sort of extensions that we're plugging into this business. Um, I also like to say that you know, top creators, they sort of need a business partner, not as much as a manager these days, um, who could be their you know, the boots on the ground serve as a liaison, you know, service all of these, you know, third-party extensions, es essentially protect the creator's peace. Um, and so I think we're starting to see this interesting marriage between creators and entrepreneurs, not necessarily creators and managers who sort of oversee transactional stuff. It's an entrepreneur, it's a business person, a best friend in the business world who can handle all of those essential things for the creator um, and know that it's being done so uh, in pure confidence. All the effort, again, of just ensuring that the you know, creators whom you're working for are primarily focused on just making the absolute best pieces of content they possibly can. So uh, that's sort of it in a nutshell. I've seen firsthand creators want to be a little too hands-on and everybody works a little differently, but it all sort of ends the same way. The creator is too hands-on. They're participating in too many meetings. They're attending too many whiteboard brainstorm sessions, if you will. And then suddenly uh, the content side is being neglected and they recognize that this isn't in the best interest of my time. Yeah, that's a good point. And it is one that I think about a lot because it must be, I think, for a lot of them, an ambition or a door that's opened and something they realize, oh, okay, I haven't done this before. Maybe I'd like to try my hand at the business management side of things. But I mean, take a name like who in the UK was like probably still is one of the biggest, Zoella. Now, like I feel... I mean, I'm speaking like I know her and I know what goes on, but I don't. But I do feel that um, she really took an active part in the managerial side, in the businesswoman side of things. And the content isn't there anymore. So, yeah, it's a balancing act. But it must be difficult for the creators who, you know, get a taste of this, decide they want to transition into more of a business type deal, but realize that the content is how you make the other part succeed. Like, it, yeah, it's it's hard. Exactly. And 
again, I, I, I truly hate to, to generalize because all creators are different. And like, you know, the crown jewel, the, the, the bar is Mr. Beast and he is who he is. Um, he's able to produce the best content YouTube has essentially ever seen, but also serve as a executive and a leader to all of these businesses. Um, so everybody ultimately does work different. I'm not suggesting that, you know, both roles can't coexist, but again, it, it all continues to just sort of orbit around the core offering of all of these businesses, which is just media content. It's, it's hard enough just sort of focusing on the sheer minimum output of deliverables that creators are focused on hitting week over week, but to add so many more layers to that, there's only so much time and bandwidth each day. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm starting to see this really interesting marriage between, you know, entrepreneurs and business people parlaying their sort of skill sets with the creator and sort of dividing and conquering the business side and the content and media side. Yeah, that makes sense. Everything needs a dream team. But I want to um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, yeah, that psychology side of things. So the it factor or influence or whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of advice out there trying to codify what makes someone famous or what makes an influencer actually be able to influence audiences. But I am interested from what you've seen and especially your own portfolio of creators on, you know, what what works. What do you think gives these people their power? Like why why do we watch? Is it something that you can replicate or is it an X factor that, you know, you can't quite put your finger on, but some people just have this star quality and 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 that's it. It really runs the gambit. Um, you know, I, I like to say for Corn Kid is an example again, who, you know, I, I discovered Julian Shapiro Barnum. Um, he was, you know, a, a recent graduate of BU, uh, studied film, wanted to be in the world of internet, but hadn't had any prior experience yet. And, you know, before I really put a mic in his hand that gave me the opportunity to pursue recess therapy, which again, is one of the, the biggest series on the internet today. I just got a sense of, you know, how he is inspired to produce good content. What is he motivated by? What are his ambitions? Um, and, and my job is to really instill confidence in creators. It's, it's pretty interesting how so much of it is psychology. Um, and I've worked with so many and you sort of see the same patterns that, you know, recur. One of many examples I'm sure many people uh, listening can relate to is the algorithms on social, right? Like there could be really great days, then terrible days, and then there's massive growth and then it stagnates. And you try to understand why that might be. You almost view it as something you're doing wrong, which is never the case in my opinion. There's just a variety of factors out there and you almost need to collect it and just own in on what you can control, which is just producing the best piece of content that keeps you inspired, that keeps you fulfilled and maintaining that you know sort of light within you. So it's so interesting because I almost view that as sort of one of the last things I look for in creators. I want character and I want good work ethic and I want drive and ambition and are you know able to take constructive criticism and can collaborate because when you have all of that you know intangible criteria baked into you the sort of x factor it's going to work itself out whether it's apparent initially or not i've seen creators who didn't actually recognize what their star power might be until they ultimately sort of manifested it so it's impossible to predict these things at the very least you just want to make sure you're working with somebody who you know is easy to work with you know, you align on goals and you have a very shared mission involved, whatever those goals ultimately are on paper. No, super good point. And I think like speaking about like one of the things I think that helps that content perform or has always done traditionally is because influencers were meant to be a more relatable step down from brand adverts, right? It's, this is, I'm just the person next door. Like you can, of course, you can trust my recommendation on what moisturizer I use because I'm just like you. And I think that peer to peer um, side of it is still really important. 
But I do sort of sense a contradiction upcoming whereby how can they still be, you know, the girl next door, peer-to-peer, have that sort of buddy-buddy relationship and then also be actively wanting to build a business and a brand around themselves? And don't you turn into the problem that way? Like, how do you remedy that? It's, it's a great question. And there's sort of this razor-thin margin between, you know, wanting to present yourself as a premium brand a superior brand, but not coming from an authoritative place. Um, you want to maintain that peer-to-peer perspective. And, you know, I'm sort of allu- alluding to it a little bit earlier in this conversation, but I, I would pinpoint if there's one sort of, you know, large issue that I'm seeing in sort of the world of legacy media, legacy commerce, is that the that sort of perspective, that communication between the brand and their customer base or their fans, um, it's not coming from an individual's, you know, point of view. And I think you know, especially Gen Z, they're looking for that, which is why this whole creator economy, these creator-led brands are taking off. It's because when people see a brand, they also see a person and they think that this person is talking to them. This person is promoting this product to them. They're communicating to them. And that translates to the word authenticity, which is oftentimes incredibly overused. But what does that mean? It means it's real and people just want what's real on the internet, whether or not it actually is. This is how they sort of, you know, rationalize these things. So it's weird. The whole industry is metamorphosizing in a bunch of different ways and everything is ultimately cyclical at the end of you know, the day. And 10 years from now, we could argue that uh, you know, these creator-led brands ultimately turned into the legacy brands that uh, you know, predated them. So it's, uh, it, it's anyone's prediction right now, but I think if there's really, yeah, one thing brands could try to accomplish is that it comes from a very truthful place and they find some kind of emotional connection between their brand uh, and the internet. Yeah, I mean, I hate the word authentic too, but it is correct in this context. And yeah, this is part of the reason I, I love doing this this podcast because we'll have a conversation like this maybe every 12 months. And as you said, it's it's anyone's game. It's hard to predict it. So um, I'd be interested to see how the answers differ a year from now. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to ask you again and again and again about Corn Kid, but I do think on behalf of people listening at home, if you had any advice for brands who may have experienced a viral hit or creators who've experienced a viral hit and a viral moment that went further than they thought it was going to, what your advice would be on how to sort of uh, reap the benefits of that or like turn it into some tangible benefits, either to emulate it again or um, in, a fo- in follow-up content to keep that momentum going? It's, you know, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, I, it's funny. I've, I've sat on a number of panels since Corn Kid and I've been asked pretty much the same question. Not, not the question I you bet asked, you're sick of it now, aren't you? <laughs> it's, it, it's just really interesting because it's like, how, how do you produce that moment again? Like the, the internet, there's so much content. There's so much stuff coming at you. How do you own the internet's mind share for several weeks? Um, it's nearly an impossibility. I like to call it a phenomenon. Um, where you can't replicate it. It sort of happens and you can't necessarily explain how or why. Having said that, you know, what I like to say is for Lisa's therapy, you know, we had a number of viral moments, not at the scale of Corn Kid, but we had moments where we clocked 10, 20, 50 million views on an individual uh, you know, video. So what we would do is we would, as a group, collect data, social listen, you know, understand what the audience is engaging with, what they're, you know, commentating on, sort of try to pinpoint the best way we can why this happened. Uh, And there's a variety of factors, largely relatability. Like what makes someone see a piece of content and say, oh my God, I I need to share it with this person or that person. And then when they're the recipient of it, they do that exact same thing and that's how these things snowball. So, you know, again, Recess Therapy wasn't an overnight success. It took two years to get to Core and Kid, but there were these incrementally viral moments that grew and grew and grew. And actually before Core and Kid, 
uh, one of our video editors who's fantastic, Will, he gave me a call before we put the video out. And he's like, Scott, like I've seen this before and uh, I think this is a moment. And sure enough, he completely was correct. And once you do it long enough, you sort of start to understand, you know, what's going to move the needle a little bit. You know, Corn Kid, it was, you know, it was an indelible moment. It was relatable. Everything sort of fell into place naturally. We reaped the benefits in a lot of ways. Like for starters, people learned who rhesus therapy was. Um, you know, Tariq, we sort of supported him to make appearances uh, across a number of talk shows and red carpets, which was really cool, representing himself, but also representing the moment. TikTok, other social media platforms latched on to do other collaborations, ways to amplify it. So there was some financial ROI, but really the biggest ROI for us was just solidifying our brand, becoming a household name. And then it's our job to retain that audience and continue to grow. Um, so it's really a, a mix of science and art. But to take it all the way back to what I started uh, my answer with is it's very, very hard to manufacture those moments, but the best you can do is just collect data and understand what is going to move the needle internally. And sure enough, after you do it time and time again, you start to get the hang of some things that are going to outperform others. And you just try to maximize those moments as much as you possibly can. Yeah, I think. And on that, like even the most surprising brands these days are finding themselves have little viral moments and viral hits but they just think oh well that was nice and then they just carry on as usual but it's you're so right now like now's the time to sort of let people know hey i'm this person i'm this brand i do this um, and make sure people know like it wasn't just some video from some guy or some account but you actually can put a name to that face or sound or, or whatever it was and i bet you know you said your video guy said oh well this one's gonna blow up i bet you anything it's because he found himself singing it to himself in the shower later and just that that catchiness and <laughs> I, I like to <laughs> advise brands now. I just like like focus on like earworms, that audio-based stuff, make it quotable because we'll find ourselves quoting memes all day. And I just feel like, yeah, that, that stickiness is super important. On the theme still of of that advice, from watching and sort of working with your your team of creators, what can you tell us about how they approach making content? And I know you sort of uh, you'll be coming at this from from a different side of things, but I do think it's worth asking when coming up with constant ideas is often one of the most difficult tasks on any sort of creators or social media professionals to do list. You know, it's our job to support them. And when we have the random great idea, yes, like we serve it to them and we provide context in terms of why we think they should consider it. But otherwise, you know, they have the keys, they lead, and our job is to support them to help sort of actualize a concept or potentially brainstorm and support things that start from their initial ideas. I've always, again, been reluctant to just tell a creator what to do because nobody understands how to do it better than they do. I prefer the word empower. I've used it probably a few times. I love to use it because empowering is instilling confidence, you know, providing constructive feedback, helping them discover the next thing through their own independent personal journey. And we're all just side support that gives them, you know, the comfort and knowing that they have a team behind them, valuable feedback when they want to bounce either a concept or the first rough kind of a video off of us, whatever it might be. Our job is to empower them and make them feel confident because look, I'm not a creator. And I always say like, I don't envy what they do, especially when you continue to grow. The bar is so high. The expectations are incredibly high and you need to keep sort of outperforming the last best video. And I, you know, would imagine there's serious burnout. I'd imagine, you know, you're going to continuously, you know, second guess or doubt yourself, especially when certain videos you're very passionate about don't hit as hard. So what we really need to do is just instill that level of confidence, make them, you know, understand that they are who they are. They got here for a reason and they've earned the right to continue to do this. And whatever they need from me personally or for us as a team, we're here to provide that level of comfort because being a creator can be 
you know, very lonely at times, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's just you, you know, I, I know how important collaborating with a larger team could present and produce the best product and the best content possible. So empower that, uh, that's the best way we can sort of help them do what they do best. I think that was well said. And I'd encourage any sort of manager of a team <laughs> to heed that advice as well. Um, and because I think that would be sort of applicable to anyone who's maybe like a head of content at a business somewhere. And they have a team underneath them of people that they need to empower when they're feeling like lonely or stressed or burned out. I do think it's really valuable advice. I think we have time for just one more question. And it's based on something I think you mentioned earlier, but also like for sure said last time we spoke, which was the margin between the biggest creators on the internet and just your average creator is razor thin. So I want to know what tips the scale. If it's that thin, what makes the difference? It might be a controversial comment, um, but I do believe that. I've worked with enough uh, to know that, you know, what separates the ones whom we could talk about right now that everyone knows about versus the ones who nobody knows about. Um, it is razor thin. And there's a few things that I'd love to call out that sort of separates the two. The first is just like a willingness to adapt. You know, creators can tend to become very comfortable with the stuff that they're already producing that works, but the internet moves on incredibly fast. And suddenly, if you continue to just be known as the one person who produces that X theme, you're going to get pigeonholed and that's not going to do you any good. So honestly, that willingness to adapt, to disrupt your own content strategy, look for the next best thing, step outside your comfort zone. Um, I think that ultimately puts you on the greatest path towards success. And you need to have sort of a fearlessness. Like you need to have that courage to sort of fail and not get stuck in just doing what you've always done because you know it works. Um, that's a really, really important one. I mentioned that about Julian a little bit earlier with Lisa's therapy. He's like, I will do anything. I'll put myself in any situation all in the interest of making really great content. And that said everything to me. And it's not act, you know, by accident that you know he's acclaimed the level of success that he has. Also a really important call out that separates the two is consistency. So, you know, greatness is being good consistently uh, over a long period of time. It's not being great in sporadic moments. It's just being very, very good week over week, month over month, year over year. And there's a lot of really great creators, Mr. Beast being one of them. Before anybody knew who he was, he was making the content that he was passionate about and just chipping away and improving his odds towards success. So that consistency and that work ethic is hugely critical. And, you know, burnout is real. You know, it, it's really tough to sustain you know, success over again, a very long period of time. So the best ones just have that thirst for improvement that simply cannot be quenched, right? Just continuously looking to improve 1% better over yesterday, that compounds over time. Um, so it's really, you know, a, a collection of those things, you know, that willingness to adapt, disrupt your content strategy, consistency, and just a general fearlessness and drive to maximize your potential and be the best possible creator you can be. And what an inspiring note to end the episode on. That's amazing advice. And I think one that lots of our listeners will be able to take on board. So I'll just say again, a huge thank you for coming and speaking to us today. It's um, been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Well, what an episode. I mean, Scott really knows his stuff and you can tell he's so passionate about what he's saying because his energy was so high throughout that sit down. As I said to him, where the creator landscape and economy is going to be like two, five, ten years from now changes all the time and it's always up for debate, which is why it's always so interesting to sit down with people in the eye of the storm like Scott and hear from him where that needle is heading. 
Now, obviously, not everyone listening will have a job exactly like Scott. In fact, I'm sure few do. But if, like we said at the end there, when Scott was talking about how to empower creators um, to make good stuff, just think of your team, think of your peers, think of yourself as a creator, right? As creators, aka people whose job it is to create content. If you think about the challenges that presents and then the qualities that it demands, so the work ethic, the consistency that Scott was talking about, that ability to adapt and that willingness to try anything. So that advice and everything we talked about today is applicable to what you're doing. So if your brand now is one that's asking itself, well, how do we behave more like a creator? You have your answers here um, from Scott. Such an insightful episode. Um, And I really hope that you all enjoyed that one as much as I did. So next time you see a huge viral video, it's probably worth a Google to see if that creator belongs to doing things media's portfolio. Don't forget to come back same time next Monday for your weekly dose of Social in 6.